The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. As Jesus drew near Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If this day you only knew what makes for peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days are coming upon you when your enemies will raise a palisade against you. They will encircle you and hem you in on all sides. They will smash you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another within you. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Gospel of the Lord. From very early on, the most privileged locations for Christian worship were those sites where the martyrs spilled their blood. And so it is that in Rome, after Christianity was legalized, the Emperor Constantine himself made a pilgrimage to the Vatican Hill, where he knelt down and wept at the grave of St. Peter. And it was he who then gave the order for the construction of the original church, the original basilica, which we now know as St. Peter's. The present St. Peter's Basilica is not the same building, but a church dedicated to the Prince of Apostles has been in that spot since the fourth Christian century. What a remarkably long time. The very next year, in fact, another great church was built, the Apian Way, where the Apostle Paul was beheaded. But before those churches were built, the faithful in great numbers would find their way to those locations to pray, to pray for the church, to pray for their families, to ask those great apostles to continue interceding for and protecting and guiding the growth of the church and the spread of the faith. And so it is right and good that in recognizing the importance of these locations, locations where blood was literally spilled, in witness, in faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we take a moment aside today. And it is wonderful that on this particular day we have this, at first glance, odd combination of readings, and yet both of which in their own way speak to this mystery of the apostolic character of the church and the great sacrifice of the apostles who do in the end drink of the chalice that Jesus himself had to drink, that chalice, that cup of the shedding of their blood. We can't 
stress this strongly enough. We are an apostolic faith. And it is the witness of the apostles, the apostolic witness, which is the foundation of our belief. This is why we will not add books to the New Testament. This is why, with the passing of the apostles and the ending of their witness, the church has rightly recognized revelation is complete. The high point of revelation in Jesus Christ has been given, and the witness of the apostles to whom he trusted it has been prepared and passed on to the church. There is no further witness. And note how important that is, because we don't have a vague and indefinite witness. We don't have a witness that is subject to modification in the future. It is the concrete deposit of faith handed on by Christ himself to his apostles and left in trust to the church and under the particular care of the Holy Father and the bishops who trace their ordination in unbroken succession literally, of the physical laying on of hands. Imagine this, that we can trace back for 2,000 years where the original apostolic character of the orders of our bishops has come from. The word tradition literally means that which is handed on. And so we are the church of the Savior who hands himself over for our salvation and who hands over the task of witnessing to the gospel and spreading the gospel to the apostles, not as their private treasure, but to preserve it, hand it on for future generations. And quite literally, that apostolic succession is hand it over by the laying on of hands in the act of ordination in an unbroken movement from the Last Supper down to our present day, these last 2,000 years. And if something is so important that it must be preserved carefully, followed carefully, treasured and valued and handed on with incredible care, then we must take it seriously. There are always temptations to find other sources of authority, whether those sources are political or cultural or name themselves as spiritual. But we are not the church of private revelation. We are not the church of political platforms. We are not the gospel of cultural convenience or economic policy. We are the church founded on the rock of the witness of the apostles and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's really easy to let those waters get muddied within our hearts and within our minds. But in the end, what we are all accountable to 
is the apostolic witness that has been given to us. The baptism into which we were baptized is a sacrament handed over to the apostles and celebrated in unbroken ways for 2,000 years. And the blessed sacrament which we will come forward to receive today, note again the handing over. The Lord hands over his presence to you by means of the ministry of the church and the apostolic ministry which is handed over in trust to a priest that he might hand over this treasure to you. But just as I don't ordain myself and you don't celebrate Mass on your own, all of this is something we've received from somewhere. It has come down to us. And so it is important that we know it and understand it and order our lives according to it and in terms of it. And this is what we see in our readings today. That is the issue that provokes Mattathias and his followers into a rebellion against the emperor who seeks to do away with the traditions that have been handed on to them by the Lord through Moses, his servant, and the prophets. And this issue of preserving and holding on to what has been given us took on a particular sharpness at this time because worship in the temple was no longer possible. The emperor had sent his soldiers into the temple. They slaughtered a pig on the altar and erected a statue of Zeus, desecrating the space. The people could no longer rely on the priests to offer sacrifice because the place of sacrifice had been taken away. And so it is that a people that longs to offer sacrifice is given this odd gift by the emperor of, we'll set up altars in your towns. And you can offer sacrifices to our God. In a sense, you can participate in our public rituals, our public religion, our social piety. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, this is an invitation that we see all around us today. Leave your particularity aside. Conform to the values of the culture at large. Mouth the same cultural pieties that the world around you always has on its lips. And there are dangerous progressive pieties that confront us today, and there are equally dangerous conservative pieties that present themselves to us today. We are the gospel. The gospel reduces itself to neither of those things. But it's so tempting and so easy to give in to that pressure, to give in to that call to conform our worship, our practice, our thinking, our living to something less than and different from the gospel. Because holding on to the gospel is not an easy thing. And so it was at the time of Mattathias, 
When we can't go to the temple, when we can't make our pilgrimage to Jerusalem, what do we have? We have the law. And we have to look at it again. And we have to know it and embrace it and follow it. The party of the Pharisees that we hear about in the New Testament, they're the descendants of Mattathias and his family and their friends who rebelled against this occupying government and its attempt to impose idolatry. And it's this movement to engage the law with renewed vigor and force and to, to live it well and completely because that is what will hold us together as a people. And that is where our national identity comes from. Not from some government that pretends to guarantee it, but from the way the Lord has given us to live with one another. And so they dedicate themselves to not simply struggling against an oppressor, but also to taking seriously the tradition that they were given and to living it well. The Maccabean rebellion was ultimately successful and they won independence from the Greek rulers that had oppressed them. The independence was short-lived, but the rebellion was in effect successful. And it left this custom of the role of the rabbis and the synagogue and a certain way of engaging and preserving the customs and the law recognizing that who we are is bound up in these things. And it all sounds so wonderful, and in a certain sense, it is miraculously wonderful. But then we jump ahead a couple hundred years to Jesus in our gospel today, weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And these words, these difficult words that Jesus says over the city do come to pass. Jerusalem is overthrown. Its buildings are taken apart stone by stone, including the temple. Because of a failed rebellion against Rome. And note the Lord here is not celebrating that rebellion. He's identifying it with a certain hardness of heart. And do we notice as well that among the greatest difficulties Jesus has, he who is the word of God made flesh, in speaking to his own people, is that group, the Pharisees, the descendants of that struggle to be faithful so many years earlier who in that desire to be faithful ended up closing themselves, reducing everything to what I think I already know, and that no one can tell me different, and that anyone who challenges me or tries to correct me must be a heretic because I know what the truth is. Note that even heroism has its shadow side. And Satan will take advantage of all sides of the equation. 
And so on the one hand, we have the call of the world that struggles, that, that tries to enforce a distorted view of faith and religion upon, upon the people of God. And then we have a distorted sense of understanding and truth that we can allow to root itself within us. Where even in our attempt to serve the Lord, we find ways to close ourselves off to him. We become stubborn and hardened, often in unimportant things, in such a way that we can no longer hear the deep voice of the gospel. And so it is that the Lord weeps over Jerusalem. Because it's not that the Lord hasn't been trying to get through to his own people. It's not that the Lord has not visited his people. It's not that the Lord doesn't have blessing and goodness for his people. It's the story of Israel. The greatness of the people and the weakness of the people are the same thing. They're so darn stubborn. And that stubbornness beautifully wins the nation's independence in the Maccabean revolt. And yet that stubbornness later closes in on itself and decides it knows better than the Lord who comes to save it. What a remarkable, what a remarkable contrast in our readings today. On the one hand, this rebellion of the faithful, which comes to a grace-filled conclusion. And on the other hand, this rebellious stubbornness, which will try to save itself later on and meet with nothing but disaster. And in the middle of the Lord, in the middle of the Lord, who is handing over something new at this moment, and a people closed in on itself can't see and value this new thing, this newness. What we have been given is what happens in this in-between space. The Lord taking the good of all that has come through Moses and the prophets, not throwing it away, but fulfilling it, bringing it to its fullness which is what the Maccabees and their descendants in truth always sought. And then he wins the great victory, not by means of force of arms, not by means of restoring an earthly dynasty or an earthly kingship, but by mounting the throne of the cross and giving his life for all of us, showing to us as well not simply what the real victory is, but who the real enemy is, which is sin and death and all that afflicts and seeks to dominate the human heart. And he sends his apostles forth, not as soldiers, not as warriors with swords in their arms to conquer the world and impose a kingdom that way, but by the force of truth, by the strength of love, 
and their weapon, faithfulness, prayerfulness, and sacrifice. Not a political movement, nor a social movement. Something beyond those things. That is the apostolic way. Freedom is not won by force of arms. Politically, at times, it must be. But real freedom, the freedom of the heart, is never the product of such a victory. The freedom of the heart actually comes from a certain kind of surrender. And at best, at its deepest, that surrender is surrender to what has been handed on to us. Not that we control it, not that we manage it, but rather that it shapes us and it manages us. And that is why the center of the unity of the church is this great sacrament, the Holy Eucharist. A sacrament whose very essence is a handing over. But the beautiful thing is that even as the Lord hands himself over to us in this great sacrament, you can't receive it well or worthily without handing yourself over to him as well. And it's that mutual handing over. Because in the end, the high point of revelation is not a set of principles. It's not a list of things we need to memorize. The high point of revelation is a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And our law is not a written law. Our law is a person, a life, a life that we received a share in in holy baptism and a life that hands itself over to us time and time again every time we receive holy communion. In a sense, each Christian is called to be a living gospel because we receive he who is the very center of the gospel into our lives, into our hearts, as often as we gather together. It is the Eucharist that is the true shape of our living and that shows us how we are truly to live and be with one another and that sends us forth to be that in this world. We get it wrong a lot of times. What we do is we bring the world in here to tell us how we need to be together and how we need to think and how we need to act and how we need to believe. But it's the other way around. It's what we receive here that needs to shape how we live out there. On one final note, there's been a lot of distorted media coverage about a document that the bishops have been working on and just unanimously approved as a result of their meetings. And that is the document on the Eucharist. And much media, polarized media, both from church, some church sources, and in the popular world has wanted to reduce this to a debate over who can receive Holy Communion, which is simply one chapter of the document and not the most important chapter. The real goal of this document 
And the real movement out of the bishops move, uh, meeting is something bigger than that. The bishops have discerned a compelling need to revitalize devotion to the Blessed Sacrament and the celebration of the Eucharist in these United States, in the American church. That's a much bigger issue. That's a much bigger issue than simply a juridical matter of who comes forward for the sacrament. The issue has been we need to attend to how we celebrate, how we understand, how we all participate in this action which is the source and the summit of everything that we are about as the people of God. And so there is a strategy in place over the next several years to move toward this revival, which is first and foremost something spiritual, and a revival of the spiritual life, the sacramental spiritual life of the Catholic faithful in the United States. That's the talking point that isn't being repeated. And it is important that we recognize that. Because the call that will be coming out of the meetings is a call to every single American Catholic and to every single American Catholic priest and bishop. How do we take more seriously and engage more deeply and more profoundly in the privilege of celebrating this? That really is a question worth looking at. That really is a goal worth moving toward. And if we even respond halfway, imagine the progress we could make spiritually and morally as a people. Because this shows us the true shape of our living together and our worship of the Lord. Amen.